Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! All right, my name is Harriet Congdon, and um, it's been a while since I've been up here. Um, I had to take a couple of months off away from church to recover from a knee replacement. I got back and I thought, oh my gosh, there are a bunch of new faces. <laughs> so I'm hoping I have a chance to meet you if I haven't already. Um, the last time I was up here, we were in the middle of a series called The Power Dynamics back in the fall. And I chose the topic of gender. Um, I love talking about women and what the Bible has to say about that. And I tried to start from Genesis and work my way through the Bible. And by the time I got the New Testament, I realized... I am not going to have time (laughs) to cover Paul at all. So I just made a couple of statements. I'm really happy that I have a chance to follow up on that uh, teaching with uh, Paul and women this morning. So that's what we're going to tackle. And uh, I have to warn you that I've got a bunch of stuff I want to (laughs) say. And so I told uh, Kurt, I think we might go over a little bit, but I'll try really hard. I might talk really fast. And I might be kind of, if I say something like something crazy, I spent all of the, all day yesterday in bed suffering from vertigo. And <laughs> I, Kurt had to come up with a backup sermon last night because I couldn't tell him whether or not I'd make it this morning until this morning. So anyway, so if I say something that doesn't make sense, please excuse me for that, okay? All right. Um, Before we get into some of the specifics about Paul and women, I want to share just a little bit of my story and my journey with Paul. I did not grow up in a Christian home, and um, (laughs) but I think if my dad were alive today, he would um, proudly claim himself to be um, a feminist. So that's what I actually grew up in, was, was a home like that, that taught me that kind of mindset. But a funny thing happened when I became a Christian in high school. Um, I got adopted into a certain part of the church that was very conservative and traditional. They had a literal interpretation of the Bible um, and had a lot of uh, uh, the culture around that was, like I said, very conservative. And I later, a few years later, went to Bible school with the same kind of views and beliefs. Paul took front and center when it came to the teaching. It was most of the teaching centered around his writings. Um, so the early years uh, as a Christian, I read Paul inside and out. I don't even think I read the Gospels until I got to Bible school. <laughs> okay, so um, I outlined his his writings, and I did. I was really good at outlining. I mean, I have the grace to prove to you that I did a good job of outlining. I memorized a lot of his passage, I mean, the passages from his uh, writings. Um, And then I'm in Enneagram 3, okay, which is Achiever, and Paul speaks my language. I mean, I I mean, I understood everything he was saying because it's like I wanted very clear cut how to be this good Christian, and I did a pretty good job of being a good Christian. But then I I ended up in this place, eventually, of uh, this binary black and white thinking, which led to legalism. And so it got to the point where my life was all about rules, and it started to not work for me. And God became more and more distant. Seven years after I graduated from Bible school, I ended up 
becoming an atheist. Didn't work. A few years, well, actually just not that long after uh, that seven-year period, um, I, I had this second encounter with God that was totally unexpected, kind of like a Paul uh, conversion, like what Paul experienced in his conversion, minus the bright lights and the blindness part. But it was a dramatic turnaround. I mean, dramatic turnaround. And all of a sudden, I'm in this place of trying to figure out what faith looked like, what it, what it meant, what it was for me. And so it, uh, it was different, definitely different than what I had before. But trying to reclaim faith got to be pretty tricky for me because I had a hard time opening my Bible. I had a hard time reading anything in there without feeling like or being scared that I was going to fall back into legalism. I couldn't read Paul. Not long after, um, well, a few years later, and there were a lot of experiences that happened I can't get into, um, I want to share with you two major things that happened to help me to get another way to read my Bible, a, a different set of lenses, okay? And the first thing I did was I went to seminary, which was kind of odd, and it, took a, it was a, really a miracle for me to get there. John was part of the reason, kind of encouraged me to go there too. But, but I was getting involved with women's ministry, and I was still within this conservative circle, okay? So the only thing that was available to me, because I, I kept finding myself in leadership positions, was women's ministry. So that's all I did. So I went to seminary, which was, still, was, <laughs> which was connected to the same Bible college I had already gone to. So that's the miracles I went back to that. But, but it was different. I was now in my late 40s and um, had some life experiences. And it turned out that that experience was a really positive one because there I found out, yeah, there is a different way to read the Bible. I got some tools and an understanding, and especially through the Old Testament. That was the back door <laughs> to this place was through the Old Testament. The second thing... Um, that helped me to shift was uh, more recently, and that was learning about three dominant cu cultures that are in the world today. And um, this information helped put another layer to my understanding of how to read my Bible. Um, I shared with them, actually, my first sermon here at Cascade was about honor-shame culture. So a lot of you haven't um, been here, and so I'm going to just give a real brief a summary of, of what those three cultures are, because they're going to help us understand two passages that I want to unpack this morning, okay? Uh, so, first one is power-fear culture. Now, this is usually animistic, um, tribal, and this is the kind of culture where people uh, seek power over the spirit world, because they're, they're trying to minimize their fears. The second one is innocence-guilt culture, and that's what we in our Western culture uh, is the dominant culture for us. It's individualistic. Um, and here we seek to uh, justice and forgiveness in order to deal with our guilt. And then the third one is honor-shame culture. This has more of a collectivistic or group-minded um, uh, society. Uh, it's common in the East. And it is where people seek to restore their honor when they fail some kind of group expectation, okay? And that seeking that honor has to happen within or before the community. Now, one of these is usually dominant in any one culture, but it doesn't mean that they can't have elements of the other two. 
So, for example, my mom is Japanese, and in Japan, it is predominantly honor-shame culture. But I remember as a kid, she would take a bag of salt, and she would tuck it behind the license plate on the front bumper of the car when she started learning how to drive, because she believed it would ward off any evil spirits that would cause her to crash. Okay. Well, that's power fear been, uh, um, uh, dynamic that's going on there. But she was, you know, she came from an honor shame. So there was a mixture of the two there. Honor shame culture is the dominant culture of Paul and the whole Bible. And once you see how those, the, the um, aspects of honor shame culture play into the Bible, it really explains a lot of things. And Paul's writings as well. Now, part of his writings do reflect innocence, guilt, culture. You'll see it in the language of uh, sin and forgiveness, right, wrong, good, bad. Uh, but mostly, most of it is confined to doctrine, to his understanding of who Jesus was and what, and what Jesus came to accomplish. When it came to major social issues, Paul navigated honor-shame culture with care. Any teaching that he offered, um, any solution to a problem, was guided by this one question. What brings honor to the gospel and doesn't hinder his mission to the Gentiles? So when you read Paul, you have to kind of try to figure out uh, what his words mean and whether they're just for the people back then, specific to the context he was in, or whether... They're supposed to be followed for all of time. Before we get into uh, Paul and women, I want to repeat something that I, I said last time when we talked about power and gender. And again, apologize. Um, I will be using the language of the Bible, which is set in a patriarchal society that was gender binary and heterosexual. You were either male or female, either a man or a woman. My perspective is as a cisgender woman in a heterosexual marriage. But I'm mindful of non-binary perspectives and experiences, including intersex and transgender and same-sex marriage. Okay? So I, I just want to apologize. I'd be using language that is binary because of the Bible. All right. I want to take a look uh, at Paul's theology and, and draw from that. Uh, his theology, three primary core beliefs that he had that directly impacted women and his view of women. Um, it leveled the field of access to this God of, of Israel. Okay? The first one was his, uh, his doctrine on the Holy Spirit and from Pentecost seeing that the Holy Spirit indwelt all believers, whether you were male or female. And the distribution of the spiritual gifts was not dependent on gender. That was uh, one core belief. The second one was what he coined the circumcision of the heart taken from Romans 2.29. Um, Paul shifted the concept of circumcision from the Jewish practice that was reserved for men and was required for their inclusion into, into the nation of Israel. But now he talked of it as an experience of the heart, and that made it available to everyone. If you don't mind me being blunt, <laughs> the penis was no longer equated with power and privilege in God's kingdom. Okay? 
Great news for women. (laughs) The third core belief he had was the new creation in Christ from 2 Corinthians 5.17. And this was a new identity given by Christ that was no longer dependent on status, ethnicity, or gender. His statement in Galatians 3.28 was a radical statement for his time. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what was his experience with women? Paul knew his Old Testament scriptures inside and out. He was a Jewish uh, man that was trained in it. He was as a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament stories, including all the women leaders in the nation of Israel, like Deborah from the book of Judges. He would have known all those stories. He probably would have heard all the stories of Jesus, including how Jesus interacted with women and engaged them. And Jesus pushed the social boundaries there. He probably met some of the women disciples that followed Jesus and knew him personally. But one chapter in Romans is a very fascinating one. It's at the very end, chapter 16. And there, he lists a whole bunch of people that he wants to acknowledge and greet, because this letter is going to be sent on to the church in Rome, and he wants to greet some people. 27 people are named specifically. Out of the 27, 10 are identified as having some kind of office or role in the church, a leadership role, or they're described as working hard in the Lord. Of those 10... Seven are women, and he knew them personally. I want to mention just one of them because uh, she has an interesting story. Junia, verse 7. Paul describes her as being outstanding among the apostles. After the New Testament church, the church eventually down the road, especially through the Middle Ages and to today, uh, returned to patriarchy. And Junia created a real problem for Bible translators, especially in the early 1900s. They could not conceive of a woman being an apostle. Apostles could only be men. So in translating the Bible and the original Greek, they turned her name into a male form, Junia's. If you're using the NIV like we do here, you have to get to the 2011 edition of the NIV to see that they finally turned her name back to the female form. I have a, um, I have a little bit of a dream that in about 10 years, I'm hoping that there are going to be a, lot of, there are a bunch of little girls running around the church who are named Junia. <laughs> I think it's a really beautiful name. But that would be such a subversive statement against patriarchy if if that happened. Uh, Would you agree? (laughs) Yeah, so name your girl, Junia. (laughs) Okay, so let's unpack a couple of passages um, from Paul's writings. One of them deals with women in church leadership, and the other one deals with women in marriages. So the first one I want to tackle is 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, it'll be on the screen too. Um, This is the main passage used against women in church leadership. 1 Timothy 2, 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles, which actually literally 
says braided hair. We're in trouble, okay. Or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. How many of you are kind of like scratching your head or going, ooh, this is like so offensive? Or like, what the heck is he talking about here? Okay, so this is like kind of a complicated passage. But I need to give you some background first, okay? The church was located in the city of Ephesus. And from archaeology and ancient documents that were found, um, there's been some things that they found there that helps to explain this. Now, the church in Ephesus included new believers from two very different communities, okay? And which is why Paul is writing to Timothy, because these new believers have to have their beliefs deconstructed and corrected, we know that there was a huge temple for the worship of the goddess of fertility and birth, the god, goddess Artemis. And here's a photo of what it looks like now, but it, you could tell it was a huge, huge temple. Um, <laughs> when you get into the details of this religion, it kind of feels like something out of the, lo, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, like Temple of Doom stuff. <laughs> it's really weird and kind of extreme. Um, it was a female-centered religion with priestesses that were in power over men. Um, over the male priests, the male priests were required to be castrated. They had a very low view of men and marriage. Um, women were, with money and uh, status were the ones that were in power. They also played on the fears of women in childbirth because back then they didn't have the medical care or the medical knowledge. And so childbirth was really a, a uh, a scary thing to go through. So they would play on those fears to keep them dependent on Artemis for safety. That's where the power-fear dynamic comes here in this particular part of their beliefs. The second community uh, were Jews with their own form of Judaism. And there was this problem of syncretism. These, the Jews had adopted some of the temple beliefs, and then in the end what they did was distort their own Old Testament scripture in order to make it fit. So for them, Eve took priority over Adam because men, because of Adam, were viewed as the source of all sin and all evil. Um, the story of the curse in, uh, or the curses in, in Genesis 3 that included pain in childbirth was, was then, uh, it kind of intensified their fear. It made it worse. So women started choosing to not have children to avoid that because the Bible story, I mean, their, their scriptural story in chapter three gave them an excuse not to. Okay. So understanding um, the context of Timothy's church does help us then make sense of Paul's words. So Paul's instruction uh, to not be overdressed is better understood within the power dynamic, okay, of what was going on for women rather than an, a dress code. And, you know, today, those who interpret the Bible, especially from the conservative branch, it's oddly inconsistent for the churches to enforce this injunction against women teaching when they don't enforce the dress code that's outlined here, and it's right next to this passage. 
So uh, there's an inconsistency in the application of literalism here. Now, Paul's restriction on teaching becomes, uh, also makes more sense once you know who the women are that he's talking to. Um, these were women from the temple that were used to teaching men and having power over men. So Paul wants to, them to assume the posture of a learner first as they begin to learn what it means to follow Christ. It's not that they can never teach again. If, that had, if this had been a total ban on women teaching, then that would contradict Paul's support of women in 1 Corinthians where he validates and encourages women who are prophesying, which is a form of teaching. Also, this word, uh, Paul says, you know, not to teach and not to have authority over men. This word for authority is an interesting one. Uh, the Greek word is authentane. And it falls under the category of being a hapax legomenon. Kind of sounds like a Dr. Seuss creature to me, but it's a specific type of word in which it's the only occurrence of that word in the Bible. Okay, so this Greek word only occurs here. Um, so interpreters, if, you, if they try to figure out, well, what does it mean, um, and they're trying to get the um, context or the meaning of it, because words can have several meanings, um, you have to go outside the Bible in order to get a broader uh, idea of how this word is used and what it means. And most of the sources outside the Bible are referring to a very specific type of authority. It means authority, but a specific type. It's authority that's abusive, even to the point of violence. So Paul is not banning all authority. He's banning a, an abusive kind over men. When we get to Paul's use of the creation narrative, when he you know, mentions about Adam being formed first, then Eve, and then Adam being the one, to, I mean, Adam was not the one deceived, but Eve was. Um, his writing, he, he, used, he loves the creation narrative. He uses this several times in his writings. And, and trying to explain it can get a little bit complicated. Um, several times he uses the creation order to argue for something. And then here it sounds like he's just blaming Eve for sin. But in Romans 5, he blames Adam, okay? So it's obvious both are responsible. I thought the best way to explain how he uses his Old Testament scripture and then this creation narrative is to make the, use the metaphor of a, of a teeter-totter. Um, we talked about what's your favorite equipment. Mine was the teeter-totter, the seesaw. Um, it was a, I loved going on the seesaw and getting on it with another person at the other end and, and just going up and down, up and down. And then um, what I really liked to do was, get, is, was to make this challenge of, okay, let's see if we can like balance perfectly so it's horizontal and have our feet hang on, you know, off the end there, not touch the ground, but just keep it just right, balance, and see how long we could hold it. The thing about uh, the seesaw is that it is absolutely no fun if the person on the other side weighs more than you. And that would happen to me because I was, you know, pretty small then. And, 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 and that person, not only that, he, uh, that person weighed more, but if they were kind of mean. <laughs> and, and so often I'd find myself like the person would just like bang down to the ground and I would be at the top and I, you know, my body would fly off the seat and come down, crashing down again. And, and, and the person, I got caught. I was in, not in control, right? I couldn't, I was not in control, which meant I was at the mercy of that other person on the other side. 
Um, so in order to have balance on a seesaw, you have to have equal weight. If the other person was, did weigh more, I would sometimes try to find a third person to sit on the seat with me to balance out that heavier person. Sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. <laughs> but I think this is what Paul is doing. Here, the women bringing in these beliefs gave them the advantage over men in their mind, okay? They, had, they were used to power over men. So Paul is picking details from the creation narrative and adding weight to the men, to the men's side. I don't think he's trying to flip it back to a patriarchal system at all. I think he's trying to get balance. So he picks that, that part of the, of the story to do that. He's not ignoring Adam because we know that from other parts of Scripture. He's just choosing a part of the creation narrative to make his point and balance the power. Does that make sense? Okay. Lastly, there's this really strange comment about being saved through childbearing. And knowing the context now, being saved makes more sense if you think of salvation from fear of childbirth rather than actual eternal salvation, which messes with Paul's theology anyway, because he was so, the number one doctrine was saved by faith and faith alone, okay? So this, this idea of salvation through childbearing doesn't fit with his theology, but it would, understanding the fear that they had about childbirth. So this passage is 1 Timothy's example of descriptive teaching that's confined by the immediate context. So we have to be very careful about how we use it or apply it today. Are you with me so far? Okay. Okay, I got to rush through Ephesians 5. So if you want to turn there, let's go there now. Um, I'm going to read Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You know, this passage has been used to cause a lot of hurt and damage, I think, in the church and in general. It's been used to maintain this power structure in the home in which headship, that's the trigger word, headship, means the husband has the final authority or um, maybe practically the final say if you have a conflict or disagreement. Okay. Um, also, headship means the husband has the role of being the spiritual leader in the home over the wife and the children. At worst, um, it has led to religious and marital abuse, and often that has been ignored. At best, it places a huge weight on husbands of a responsibility that cannot be sustained. 
and a guilt that's unnecessary and unhealthy. Also, singles and those divorced have been hurt by teaching from Ephesians 5. Um, by elevating marriage to this place of ultimate spiritual um, godliness that I don't think is there. In fact, it's kind of ironic because Paul uh, encourages singleness over marriage in 1 Corinthians. The reality is that we live in a broken world where um, the longing to find a life partner may never be realized. And what do you do with those desires, those longings? Those questions, they're hard, but they need to be validated without offering patronizing answers and certainly not answers from the Bible that aren't there. I know that many uh, try to soften the power structure to emphasize the husband's sacrificial care of his wife, but I think there's another way to read Paul that doesn't support hierarchy. So let's get into that. So I want to talk about the big picture first. Um, You might notice that I read... Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you go, when you go to the next verse, why submit yourselves to your own husbands, an interesting thing happens in the original Greek. The verb submit is not there. It is automatically assumed, or t- uh, the verb is taken from verse 21, which means verse 21 is, is connected to whatever follows in a very important way it becomes the reigning paradigm for whatever else is following. So verse 21 is the lens with which we can read the rest. Submit to one another. In fact, you can see mutual submission uh, informing the relationships of children and parents and slaves and masters in chapter 6. I'm going to leave that to you to read, but... Read, read that, and you'll see how Paul balances the dynamic, the power dynamic in, in both of those relationships, and that mutual submission is what he's after in both of those. So verse 21 is very important. So most of the challenges that we have in our passages, uh, passage has to do with interpreting the body metaphor. Um, so the first thing I want to tackle is just the meaning of the word head. Okay? In the Greek, it's kephale. Um, it does, ha- it has, uh, there are several meanings. I'm going to highlight three. One is that it means the physical head, okay? Uh, it's used to describe somebody with the, the head on an actual body. The second meaning is that it can mean um, uh, authority or leadership. Um, and in fact, if you go to chapter 1, verse 22, just Ephesians 1, 22, I think that's what Paul means when he calls Christ the head. But the context is, Christ is the head over everything, all rulers and authorities, okay? So that meaning of authority is definitely in the use of that word kephale. But kephale can also mean source, like the head of a river, the source of the river. It, now, in using this uh, term, maybe Paul is referring to Genesis and the creation story. Again, like I said, it's one of his favorites. And so maybe he's talking about the fact that Eve was created out of man. So in a sense, man was the source of the woman. But I think it's more plausible to understand kephale in the context of honor-shame culture, which included a system called patronage. The patronage system was a basic building block of, of the society back, in, in back then, and it created relationships that were mutually beneficial. 
But you had the patron who had the power, um, usually a lot of money or the resources, to provide something for a client who was uh, lesser in power but dependent on the patron. But the client provided something that was beneficial to the patron as well. So there was this system that was reciprocal called patronage. Marriage was part of that system. To identify the man as the head meant he was the source of the woman's quality of life. So Paul uses the language of husband as head and wife as body that would have been understood within the honor-shame culture, and he chooses that metaphor with that kind of a context. That's what I believe is going on here. What did Paul intend the body to represent? Now, one of the things that um, is important to understand about Ephesians is that Paul has this consistent theme throughout um, that can't be ignored, and that is Paul's concern for the unity within the church. So this metaphor of the body is actually used in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4, and is used to argue for the inclusion of Gentiles into the life of the church. Paul did not want the church of the Gentiles and the church of the Jews. He wanted one church, including both. What's repeated in those passages, as well as in ours this morning, is this idea of two becoming one. Two becoming one. Paul's use of the body metaphor is not about authority, but about unity and connection. You can't have a living body without a head. If you cut off the head, body dies. I mean, you could cut off an arm, you could cut off a leg, the body will still live. But you can't do that to the head. The point is that you need the head connected to the body to have a living body. Unity and connection. Paul's connection then with the husband and wife and then uh, to, the Christ, to Christ and the church can also be something that gets confusing. And if you're not careful, you take it too far. Traditionalists have taken that connection as justification for the husband's spiritual authority. But this also messes with Paul's theology. Paul stated very clearly that Jesus is the only mediator between God and human. No human can be mediator. Secondly, a husband doesn't have the kind of power to sanctify, cleanse, or to make holy and blameless. Only Jesus has that kind of power. So this is the mistake that I see traditionalists making in their interpretation. Instead of one metaphor, they've made two metaphors. First, they rightly, they see the human body as a metaphor for marriage, but they've wrongly made human marriage the metaphor for Christ and the church. Okay. I made a little uh, chart or tried an illustration to try and show what, what's, what's going on. Because of the emphasis on the lines of authority, husband has authority over wife, Christ over church, but instead of keeping it at the body metaphor, they've made marriage as the metaphor for Christ and the church, so the husband is equated with Christ, and the wife is equated to the church. But that doesn't, that doesn't uh, it, it isn't consistent with Paul's theology. It's not what we would say we believe. We would say that we believe that each person is responsible for their own spiritual condition. A second chart that I uh, made up illustrates what I think Paul is trying to say. Paul's not drawing lines of authority. 
what he's doing is identifying what is common ground between those two relationships. And that common ground is mystery. The mystery of union and connection. This, is this helpful? You see that? Okay. As I conclude, um, I, I, I'm okay with Paul. <laughs> and um, I think there's a way to read him that makes sense and validates women's place in the church as equal to men, as being free. I mean, I, I have to, I want to tell you, this is the first church that I've been to that I feel like I'm free as a woman to do what I'm gifted to do, to be who I am. And I could be a pain in the what, okay? <laughs> I can be. <laughs> and if, if I were to explain how John and I um, do our marriage, it is totally flipped, <laughs> okay? We don't fit the norms, the stereotypes. But we trust each other and we... we um, we recognize each other's weaknesses, and we lean into each other's strengths. We're having our 40th anniversary this year, and it's, it's, it was not easy, the whole, okay, because <laughs> we are like opposite, totally different. But I love how we do marriage. It's like a dance, although we don't dance very well at all, but I love seeing people dance, but it's just that sometimes I lead, sometimes he leads, and we just, it works, it works for us. Um, but so Paul, I, I, I have been able to read him now, and he was, and I understand now that he was a man that was uniquely positioned to figure out how the story of Israel, because he came, you know, the story, the, the the training that he got didn't just disappear, but he had to go back and reinterpret what he knew about the story of Israel with this new lens now that he had of Jesus. How did Jesus change how he understood his past? And then he was uniquely called to take the story of Jesus into the next chapter of God's story with the church. Okay? He was like this middle person. Not easy to be the middle person. Paul's writings were not the final chapter. They were only the next chapter. If Paul's task was to take the story of God through Jesus and figure out how to embody that story rightly for his time and for his place as the next step, then the church in every generation has the exact same task. We have that task today. If Paul were alive today, um, I think if he were to sit in the pew, he'd be saying, amen. <laughs> and he would, I think he would validate the values that we have here and the practices that we have because we want to keep wrestling with the words of Scripture and try to figure out who is Jesus to us today. I want to close with a poem written by uh, Mary Oliver, who passed away this week. And I know that she has meant a lot to a lot of people. You know, I, I, think, it's, I think she's uh, up in heaven, <laughs> sitting with Paul, <laughs> and they're having a great conversation about mystery, the mystery of God and creation, and human relationships, because she wrote so well in those three areas. Um, so I want to invite you right now to close your eyes and let the poem engage your emotions and imagination. She, like Paul, was a master of metaphor. 
So go ahead and close your eyes. I'm going to read it slowly, so it can be actually a prayer if you'd like to make it a prayer. The title of the poem is Mysteries, Yes. Truly, we live with mysteries too marvelous to be understood. How grass can be nourishing in the mouths of the lambs. How rivers and stones are forever in allegiance with gravity, while we ourselves dream of rising. How two hands touch, and the bonds will never be broken. How people come from delight or the scars of damage to the comfort of a poem. Let me keep my distance, always, from those who think they have the answers. Let me keep company, always, with those who say, look, and laugh in astonishment and bow their heads. Would you stand with me, please, as I offer this benediction for us all? God, may we be a people who can live with mystery and marvel, who are comfortable with not having answers, who live in the paradox of the cross and the new creation, who delight in the beauty and treasure of the person sitting next to us, who are willing to touch another human hand, connect and create strong bonds, who look and laugh with astonishment and bow our heads in worship. Go in peace.